Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival. The 8th annual New York City premiere will be October 2023, along with the 5th annual New York Cat Film Festival before traveling the country, supporting local animal welfare groups. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at TracyHotchnerPets.com. I would not be able to bring you this show without the generous support of Dr. Elsie's the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their kitties. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. This show would not be possible without the longtime support from Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food. Other pet food companies may have copied them over time, but Waruva remains privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards, not investors who focus on profits. Wayne Paselli, who started the Animal Wellness Action Group, which does really good action for the wellness of animals, wrote a wonderful piece recently about pig gestation crates. And I know we've kind of all heard about that and gestation, not not gestation crates for chickens, but confinement crates for chickens. What was interesting about this and important was it had to do with the law, which is what Animal Wellness Action does. It tries to create laws, uphold laws, so that the bad actors in the animal manufacturer world can't wriggle out of what they're doing. Wayne, there was a proposition in California, if I understand this correctly, that stopped the use of these tiny confinement crates for pigs who couldn't even turn around. They spent their whole life basically in a kind of metal straitjacket, if you will. And the proposition that I think, but of course you're always much better at explaining this than me, was voted on by voters, not just lawmakers, was to not confine them this way, which is great. California is so often the the, the leader in in all kinds of areas. And the Pig Producers Association, which probably has a different name, tried to overturn that decision, and they were unsuccessful. So although it's a lot of legal flip-flops, so some uh, something a law was put into effect or a rule, and then some people tried to overturn it, and then it didn't get overturned, can you explain why this really matters in the big picture of how we breed and raise pigs for food in America? Yes, Tracy, you know, thank you for covering this topic. You know, 95% of Americans eat meat, and I think we all, as a nation, have have a real 
interest in this topic, are animals mistreated on the way to the plates of Americans? Mm -hmm. And I have been working for the last 25 years very intensively to stop what I refer to as intensive confinement of animals. And the three worst practices are the confinement of young male calves uh, for veal production, Mm -hmm. the confinement of laying hens in what are called battery cages, where each hen was getting 67 square inches of space, which is about two-thirds the size of an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. So fold that page over by one third, that's the living space for the 18, 12 to 18 months that the laying hens are alive. They never get out of the cage once. Wow. And then, the, yeah, it's terrible. And then the third one is you and your setup are gestation crates. Now, this is just the breeding sows, but they have important lives as well. So these are the ones who are conscripted to produce the piglets who go into meat production. And the piglets, you know, grow up and within six months, they get to a market weight of 280 pounds and they're sent to slaughter. Well, the sows just keep going back between two confinement crates, the gestation crate, which is the pre-birthing crate. So they're confined in the crate, you know, before they give birth to the, to the, to the piglets and they're there for four months. Just before they give birth, they go to a different crate called the farrowing crate and they're there to give, give birth. And then they're re-impregnated, put back in the gestation crate. They may spend three years in confinement where they cannot even turn around. They can barely take a step forward or back. So, Tracy, imagine if you and I, as you said, lived in a straitjacket or we lived in a tiny closet year after year of our lives. I mean, we know so much more about emotional health than we, than we did 25 years ago for human beings, right? Solitary confinement in prison is widely viewed as, a, you know, a very severe form of punishment. Mm-hmm. You can't move. You don't have... These pigs cannot even turn around. They're immobilized as a routine animal husbandry practice. So I had launched ballot measures in Florida, Arizona, California, and Massachusetts to address this. And the latter measures not only stopped in-state confinement, but in Massachusetts in 2016 and in, in California in 2018, the measures went even a step farther to say that you cannot sell pork in Massachusetts or California if it comes from a farm that's confining this so severely. So it wasn't telling Iowa producers, that's the number one pig producing state in the country, that they can't raise their animals in confinement. We would have had to go to the Iowa legislature right. to get that, that action done. But if Iowa producers want to sell in California, then they've got to comply with California standards, which are imposed on California farmers. So it's not protectionist in the sense that California farmers have to give the animals room to move around. Each sow has to have 24 square feet of space rather than this, you know, 14 or 16 square inches, uh, square feet of space. So this is a, 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 an important national, you know, does have national consequences, but only if those producers from North Carolina Iowa and Minnesota want to sell into the California market. And the Supreme Court took this case after the National Pork Producers Council lost in the U.S. District Court uh, in multiple uh, jurisdictions, lost in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. They brought it to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court took it up. And the pig producers basically said, hey, California is trying to have this extraterritorial effect. They're trying to tell Iowa producers or North Carolina producers what to do. 
And the court basically said, no, they're not trying to tell you what to do. They're saying if you want to sell into that market, you have to play by their rules. And that states do have rights under the Constitution, that there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that forbids California from having ample welfare standards and food safety standards. And the food safety standards are we don't want, you know, animal products that come from animals who are stressed and overcrowded. They, there may be salmonella concerns. There may be other pathogens that are spawned by this inhumane extreme confinement. And the court in a five to four ruling, which is so significant for the animal welfare cause, because we're trying to stop cruelty tied to commerce and saying the states have an important role to play in our nation in leading on animal welfare. We don't want to just dumb this down because the pork producer said, well, because these products are in interstate commerce, only the federal government can decide these issues. The states can't decide these issues. Well, the states have been the ones that have done the shark fin sales bans and banning the trade in kangaroo parts and banning, you know, foie gras uh, production and the sale of foie gras. This would have devastated the animal movement. So a mix of of justices on the ideological spectrum, three conservatives and two liberals assemble the majority to uphold California's Proposition 12, which is really, Tracy, about states' rights and how the states have an important role that the compelling interest of animal welfare matters, the compelling interest of food safety matters. And what the pork producers wanted to do was wipe out the state laws and meanwhile, federal animal welfare standards for farm animals. There are no legal standards, whatever, at the federal level. So they've been blocking federal legislative uh, initiatives to help animals, and now they wanted to roll back state initiatives. So it was a very consequential decision. Very interesting. So the producers of these animals, to make the most, in, in their mind, the most efficient and profitable way of raising the pork meat, or in the case of veal or the hens, the hens, I guess, were egg layers. Um, They wanted no federal laws and were very successful at that, so that there couldn't be a kind of national umbrella of this is the decent way to treat animals. So instead, Animal Wellness Action and possibly other animal humane groups looked state to state to those states that were thinking more humanely and then blocked the sale to those forward-thinking, kindlier states of meat raised inhumanely. Is that right? Yes, although the sequence was we knew that the federal government years ago was, was a difficult nut to crack because of agribusiness hold on our federal lawmakers. And there have been very, very little progress on farm animal welfare at the federal level. So even before I was with Animal Wellness Action, working at the state level, work to impose these anti-confinement standards. Now, 10 states have anti-confinement standards. But then more recently, we ratcheted things up and said, listen, if California, if you stop the California producers uh, who who are pig producers from confining the animals, and you then don't have a sales restriction, then all the 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 gestation crate producers Iowa nothing's going to stop them right. from selling that product into California so it's not going to help animals you're just you're just saying those people in California those producers cannot do this you really want to have a level playing field for the California producers and you want to say okay the same standards are going to apply throughout California 
No one's saying that Iowa can't raise those animals under Prop 12, the California law. They're saying, we just don't want your meat uh, from, from, these, from the pigs if you're confining the sows so severely. If you want to give the animals more space, then this market is wide open to you. And that's what Justice Gorsuch said. I mean, no one's saying that you can't sell the product. You just have to adhere to California standards and that the state's have a right under our federalism system to make a decision that animal welfare is a compelling uh, state interest, food safety is a compelling state interest, and we don't want to have to dumb this down. So just because a product is interstate, you know, has, has some interstate commerce tied to it, that the states have no role, no role whatsoever. I mean, this is putting the federal government in an absolute position of huge authority, which should be anathema to many conservatives who want to empower states' rights. Very interesting. And yet you're saying that this Supreme Court ruling upheld states' rights, the right of a state upheld, to upheld say, don't cross my border with your inhumane meat, basically. Exactly. And, and this is why, I mean, Tracy, again, these are big industries, right? The, oh, my the God. Pork Huge. industry is a $26 billion industry. They're exporting their product to South Korea and to China and all over the world. The biggest pork producer in the United States is a Chinese-owned company, Smithfield Farms. Oh. And it, it's, it's in North Carolina, but it was acquired by the, basically by the Chinese Communist government you know, some years ago. So we're basically, you know, the pork producer is basically saying, we want no rules. We know better than you. We don't, it doesn't matter that the pigs are, are immobilized for three years and can't move. They're still producing. They're alive. You know, they're able to breed. Their view of animal welfare is so narrow. It's that productivity equals welfare. Now, we know that people in terrible conditions all over the world who are in poverty, we know they can still, re women can still reproduce. Uh, you know, even if they're not feeling well or they're living in a horrible environment, just because you're capable of reproduction doesn't mean you have a good life. Right. And that's what we're saying about the pigs, that, you know, that you're reducing welfare to reproduction. And there's so much more. I mean, I could have a I could have I could continue to eat. I could put on fat. If you stick me in a closet forever I may go mad, I may right. have muscle atrophy, and my bones may get weak. That's not an, a welfare situation for me, but I can survive. That's essentially what the pig industry is saying. We know better. We're smarter than you are. You don't know anything about pigs, even though the briefs that were advanced, including two scientists from Animal Wellness Action and the Center for Humane Economy, these are agricultural scientists, grew up in, in the heart of American agriculture in South Dakota and Oklahoma. They said, this is not welfare. How can you say it's okay to confine an animal so severely that she cannot even turn around and that she's immobilized for three years? So this is arrogance of the industrial pork, pork sector. And fortunately, on our side, we're hundreds and hundreds, truly, actually thousands of pig farmers who said, no, we see this as a market opportunity. Nice. We want to be able nice. to sell our pork in California, and we don't need to resort to these extreme confinement measures as a customary practice. And also, they were not owned by the Chinese government. I mean, this is a really scary <laughs> idea. The Chinese are the biggest consumers of pork in the world, as far as I know, and their position on human welfare, we can't even go there. 
But as far as animal welfare, they're like, hello, what? I mean, that's just not even on their radar. So if they've bought up (laughs) the largest pig producing farm, they're like, what's all the noise about people? We're making pork here. That's what we're here for. That's why we bought Piece of America. We need these nice American pork pieces. It's it's an eye-opener. It's really important, and I think I really would like to give a shout-out to those farmers who, even if they did it just because it was a good business opportunity, they're still sacrificing a lot of their their real estate to putting fewer gestation sows in a larger space. So there would be they can make less pork, less pig meat. On the other hand, they're doing it. And it's a decent life. It's, you know, you're a vegan. So this whole conversation must be hard for you. I mean, you have these conversations day in and day out. You and your wife are vegans and many people are vegetarians. But as you said, 95% of the American public eats some kind of meat. And I'm sure we eat our fair share of pork in various ways too, ham, bacon, and so forth. It would be really great if the packaging and I'm sure you've thought of this in Animal Wellness Action, could say, grown in California, the pro-pig state, let's say. Or, you know, (laughs) if it could say very clearly, this was not raised in inhumane conditions. You know all the right verbiage, but certainly people, if they had a choice to pay X dollars or cents more and could reach for something that didn't, I hope, provoke a bit of guilt in them, they would do it. But we need to have it differentiated for ourselves to know that this came from a good farm, like we now have with chicken. We know if well, what organic have, and cage-free yeah. means. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're going through the USDA is now in the final stages of a rulemaking to finally impose animal welfare definitions to the, to the organic standard. That organic has always meant no pesticides, no hormones. Right. But it didn't mean a damn thing when it came to animal welfare. Correct. Now there are very specific guidelines on animal welfare. But that's a national program, Tracy, and that's the way it should be. The pork industry is is complaining about, oh, it's a state-by-state state, you know, uh, set of rules, and we can't operate a national industry. Exactly. So support a right. national standard. Yeah. Support a national standard. The problem for these guys is they don't want federal laws. They don't want state laws. They don't want any rules. They want to be in charge of these animal lives, and it's been shown, if you look at their factory farms, that they are not proper custodians of the animals when it comes to animal welfare. Well, we and know that. definition of animal welfare is just so narrow and so naive and so simple that, that they are really just steeped in their industry and they're not seeing the forest from the trees. Well, you have helped us to do that. And I just hope that everyone listening looks for the certified humane sticker on the meat that they buy. That's a good beginning. There is something called certified humane, which Wayne and I will discuss at another time. But we've run out of time. And it's always wonderful to talk to you, Wayne, and learn not just about animals and welfare, but also about the government and how it works. Because that's a really big part of what you do at Animal Wellness Action. So congratulations for wearing those two different hats that do so much good for animals. Thank you so much, Tracy, as always. Thanks for listening. There are a few more special companies that make this show possible. I hope you will try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. This show is supported by Wonderside, a company founded and run by a woman entrepreneur who wanted to find an effective natural way to keep fleas, ticks, and other pests away from her pets and home instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. $1,000 
Wonderside makes plant-powered products to keep parasites at bay without dousing your pets and property with ingredients that are harmful to them and the planet. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human-edible, ethically-sourced ingredients and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They've founded and run their own company and have been doing that for 14 years and answer only to their own high standards without interference from venture capital investors. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, also privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative Dog Chew No Hide and the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky blue Weimarano Maisie will eat. <laughs> 